Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to uh, Exodus chapter 20 as we continue uh, on through our series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, we, uh, we're taking one commandment each week, which has given us a lot of time, a lot more time than we normally have in a sermon to go deep and to try to pry apart not just what the command says on the surface, but where this command is coming from and how we might actually in subtle ways that we haven't recognized before be breaking the command that we've been given here and what it would look like even to obey this command. Where can we get the resources, the strength that we need to embrace what God puts in front of us? One of the things we've been trying to say each week in each of these commands is that these commands come to us not as new standards that we have to keep in order to earn grace from God, but come to us as a result of God's grace. The commands of, uh, of the Ten Commandments come after God has already done work to redeem Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. And it's because of what he's done, because of the grace he's already shown them that he says, now go, here are these commands, they're good for you. This is what it'll look like to live as if I'm your God, as if you really do trust in me for all that you need. And so what we've been trying to do each week as we've come to these commands is interpret them in light of that context. That these are commands not as a means that we don't use as a means to get favor from God, but, uh, but are ways we can express the favor that we've received from God already. We're going to get an especially clear picture of that, I think, this morning as we come to the ninth commandment, which tells us not to bear false witness. Today we talk about honesty, why it's good to be honest, why it's hard to be honest, and more than anything else, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning is, is, is on how the gospel, how an experience of God's grace can make us honest in a deeper way than we've ever been before. How, in other words, the truth about what God has done for us in Jesus can set us free from the sorts of things that drive us to dishonesty. That's, our, that's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by just reading the command. It's short and sweet. Still, we are going to stand in honor of God's word as we read it. So stand with me now, please, as we come to chapter 20, verse 16 in the book of Exodus. This is God's word to us this morning. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned a second ago, I want to I take three steps this morning, very similar to the way we've been breaking down these commands all along, that I hope will help make the command clear. Also give us some practical ideas about where this command is at stake in our lives, where, where we're tempted to break it, but then ultimately set us up to say, how is it that God's grace to Israel and ultimately to us in Jesus, how is it that God's grace gives us what we need to embrace this command as good for us rather than rejecting it? I mean, starting with why it's good to be honest. I want to start by thinking for a minute about the, what's behind this command and why it's actually a gift of God to us. How if we were to keep this command, all of us would be better off. That's the, that's the place I want to begin. And, and to do that, I want to remind you guys a couple things we've been saying um, in, in the series along the way as we come command by command. One of the, a couple of different things we've been saying to help set us up to understand them. Uh, a couple different rules, if you will. I, I'm using some language here that, one, uh, that one, uh, a person who wrote a commentary in Exodus has given to us. Uh, one rule for trying to understand where these commands are coming from that, that's commonly used and very helpful is the rule of categories. That means that the commands that we come to actually take the most extreme form of a larger pattern 
of sin against God. So they're not meant to be interpreted in a really narrow way. So when, when, when adultery is forbidden, you shall not commit adultery, it doesn't just mean that you shall not uh, c- commit adultery against your wife. It, it, actually, it actually is much bigger than that. It involves sexual faithfulness all the way down. It involves trusting in God ultimately that, that his boundaries around sexuality are good for all of us and embracing them uh, for, for all of life. It isn't just about the most extreme example of violating this command. Or murder, another one. You shall not murder. Well, that's just the most extreme example of a whole pattern of sin that starts with anger and resentment towards someone, that starts with a detachment from them that sees their interests as different from your own, that starts with this desire to harm, and often lots of different kinds of harm that stop short of actual murder. All of it lumped in together under the command, do not murder. That's the rule of categories. We'll we'll see that it's going to be really important for the command we look at today. Another rule we've talked about is what's called the two-sided rule. That for everything forbidden, there's also a positive thing implied. So we're told not to murder. That means we should also be seeking to promote the life, cultivate the life and the flourishing of other, of other humans. We're told not to steal. It doesn't mean just keep your hands off what's not yours, but also to let go of though it is yours and to give generously. And each of the commands is meant to be interpreted like this, to see it as a much bigger picture than just the extreme version that's, that's actually mentioned, and then to see it also as implying positive things we should do, not just what we shouldn't do. So both of those rules are going to be super important for us this morning. What we've just read is that this command tells us not to bear false witness against a neighbor. Just like the command to murder, here we have the the extreme version of a whole pattern of sin. To bear false witness against your neighbor imagines a kind of legal setup where someone's been accused of something or where you're accusing someone of something that they didn't do. Now, in this ancient time, if, if, if something's on the line in one of these legal settings, someone's going to have to be judged. You have a very limited range of evidence you can look to. I mean, today we've got fingerprints. We've got video sometimes or audio evidence. We've got DNA. We've got a lot of things you can use to build a sort of cumulative case to see whether or not someone did something or not. Back then, you had witnesses. Somebody had to see it. A lot rested on what they said went down. And so false witness is among the most extreme forms of harm from what you say about somebody else. One of the most costly examples of dishonesty. And it's, it's framed here just as a, I think in this most extreme sense, just like with all the other ones, as a kind of eye catcher, as a kind of pointer, an elevator, if you will, of just how much is at stake in our honesty. And in the command, what we have is a comprehensive condemnation of saying anything that's not true, and a comprehensive commendation of speaking the truth all the time. So, that's straightforward principle. Don't say things that aren't true. Do say things that are true. It's easy to get behind in theory because I think the benefits of honesty are so clear to everybody. I want to talk about why honesty is is good for us. I I think you'll see this. I think this is probably not controversial at all. Honesty is good for society, for example. I think that's, uh, that's probably on the surface of this command what they have in mind. For, for your society, you're to be an honest people where you don't have to worry that somebody's going to try to get you in trouble for something you didn't do. Where you're not always having to look over your shoulder. 
Public trust is crucial for a healthy society. I mean, we need, we need honesty for justice. Justice depends on it, on saying, yeah, that happened. That wasn't okay. We've got to fix that. If you don't tell the truth about, about problems, about what's right, about what's wrong, about what's really going on, then justice is impossible. For peace, we need honesty. If you expect the worst about other people that you're living around, it's difficult to rest much less to cooperate with them. You're always going to have to assume that people are trying to get one over on you. You come to expect that you're only ever hearing part of the story. I think we're living like this right now, a kind of crisis of public trust. A lot of people are talking about that. When, when, when trust breaks down in a society on the whole, you start to expect that you're only ever hearing part of the story. You start to expect that transparency is a myth. You expect that public leaders are always doing image maintenance and that media are always biased and it feels like you may as well give up on seeing things as they really are. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we could actually trust one another? Wouldn't you love that? Like if when you just read a story about something that went down, you just assumed that it was right. Even if it was coming from... from pick your source that you always ignore or, or move on from. Wouldn't that be great if we just depended on honesty? And didn't have to worry about alternative facts. I don't know anyone who doesn't want more public trust than we have now. Honesty is good for society. Honesty is also good for relationships. I mean, let's take it from the, the large-scale problems that we've just been talking about. What happens when a society loses public trust? And zoom it into one relationship. Just say a friendship. Perhaps here it's even easier to make a case for the goodness of honesty. We want to know where we stand with our friends, right? I mean, you don't want to have to worry... That they're not about what they're not telling you, or about what they're telling others about you. You want to know you can take them at their word and not have to check up on them. And and friends, we know from experience, from painful experience, what it is to be betrayed, and how difficult it is to rebuild trust once we've lost it, once we've been the ones doing. On a smaller scale, we also know what it is to withhold ourselves to guard our minds and our words around somebody we expect is just going to give us partial truth. Somebody we expect to shade truth a little bit for their own purposes. Somebody we think might pass something on that we tell them to someone else and give it a different slant than what we meant for it to have. When you learn that that's, ha- that's a factor in a relationship, it puts a wall up in the relationship that affects how close you can ever be with such a person. Honesty is good for relationships. It sets us free in our relationships. And finally, honesty is good for our individual health. I mean, quite apart from the effects on other people, lies just breed more lies. And when you get into that cycle of lying, what you build for yourself is something you know better than anyone else. It's just a house of cards that won't take much to see the whole thing come down. That means you do constant maintenance on your lies. Restless attention to the consistency of them, and living with a creeping knowledge that usually one way or another the truth does tend to come out. Living like that is isolating and it's exhausting and I don't know anyone who's ever liked it. So I think we can all agree, for these reasons and many more I could keep piling up, honesty is better for everybody. In fact, lying is often driven by us being afraid about the damage that the truth will do when in fact it's the lying that has more damage, that wreaks havoc on every level. And because of that, friends, this command we got right here, command number nine, is a gift. It is a gift from God to his people, to all of us. 
a gift that we ought to embrace. It's good to be honest. That's just a few reasons why. But now, let's be honest. Uh, it's hard to be honest. Let's talk about why. I think most of us uh, think honesty is the best policy in theory. But on an individual level, when push comes to shove, when rubber meets the road, when it's really on the line, pick your metaphor, honesty is hard for every one of us. It's, it's easier to want from somebody else than to practice for ourselves. And, and before, I think this is, this is crucial here, guys, it, it, before we can talk about what it would be to live in freedom, to live in honesty, to not have to be constantly man, maintaining untruths, to just be transparent in the world. Before we can talk about that freedom, we have to be really straightforward and honest with ourselves now about why honesty comes so hard, about what it is in us that resists honesty. We need to talk about why lying so often feels like the easier road out. This week I found my way uh, to a National Geographic spread from a few years ago on the science behind lying. Google it. You'll find it. It's a pretty interesting article. It's wide-ranging. In some ways, honestly, especially the scientific part, uh, using that word a little bit loose, the scientific part, I'd say it's an article that overpromises and underdelivers. I'm not sure exactly why they framed it the way they did. But that, all that said, there's some really interesting stats in this article and some interesting stuff that they found through a bunch of interviews with a bunch of people about why they lie or shade the truth. So assuming these people are telling the truth in their surveys... Uh, the results are very interesting. Uh, if honesty, the question being, if honesty is easier, you know, if, if in a way honesty is more natural, you don't, you don't have to use your brain as much to just tell the truth. I mean, lies take crafting. They take decisions. They take careful coordination. If honesty is easier, then why, why lie? Well, in 80% of the cases, this article breaks down. So four out of five the people they talk to are explaining why it is that they tend to shade the truth. Though there are lots of individual reasons that were factored into the, to, to these results, 80% of the cases fall into two categories that to me just resonate perfectly with why dishonesty comes, seems to be the easier way for us. Two major reasons. One, to promote ourselves. Two, to protect ourselves. 80%. Lots of individual cases, but if you group them together, 80% come into those two categories. We lie to promote ourselves. We lie to protect ourselves. I just want to work this a little bit. I think we need to know what, what they mean here. We need, to, we need to know it, see it from experience so that we can, we can understand what it'll take to actually resist this, this tendency in ourselves. Let me just give you one compelling example that's been on my radar recently that captures both of these sides to why we lie and then go through some examples that'll hopefully hopefully will help you start to see it in your own, in your own heart and life. Um, recently, a friend sent me um, this podcast called The Dropout um, about uh, a company, Silicon Valley success story, Elizabeth Holmes, company called Theranos. Uh, just out of curiosity, show of hands, anybody know about Theranos? So it's about, maybe about 15% of you. Highly recommend this podcast. If you like cereal, you'll like this one. It's very similar. And it's, it's a, a, an incredible twist and turn story of fraud on a massive epic scale made for the 21st century and the ways that we like to think of ourselves. So Theranos was a company developed by a person who dropped out of Stanford and decided to be the next Apple. Only the, the platform that Elizabeth Holmes chose for herself was blood testing. She believed she could develop technology that with a single small finger prick 
could acquire enough blood using their technology to, uh, to run uh, hundreds of tests on the blood to screen for things that otherwise would have taken uh, all sorts of needles, lots and lots of blood, and no one likes to have, give blood, especially kids. So this was going to change health care. It was going to be cheaper. It was going to be less invasive and immediate as we've come to expect all things to be. Plus, it was going to have slick marketing. It was going to have a great, beautifully designed uh, uh, piece of equipment. And you were going to feel like you're getting the iPhone experience from your blood testing. That was her, that was her goal. And she got some incredible traction in a hurry by lying about how well her technology worked. So, early on, self-promotion was the key. There were lies about where this had been tested. She said that it had been tested on the field with troops in Afghanistan. We have these on medevac helicopters pulling injured soldiers out of battle, working great. Don't you want to get the same care that the U.S. military gets? She lined up um, uh, uh, some technologies that, that would work on a limited range of tests so that something could be done to convince companies like Walgreens to put these things in their stores, which they did, uh, because, and, and projected the success on these limited range out into as if it was successful on the hundreds of tests that she planned to run. One thing after another, she spun a web through carefully crafted stories, compelling images, and expert marketing. Again, made for the 21st century. First, the lies were about self-promotion, and they worked. Five years ago, 2014, this company was valued at $9 billion. $9 billion. And they were making a product that did not work, that could not run the tests it claimed to run. So eventually, as was inevitable, people start to notice this. Tests start to come back incorrect. Patients start to get scared based on the results that they're getting. People inside the company start to see that, they're, that, the, that these rooms where ostensibly they're manufacturing and testing this equipment are not available and not accessible to anyone. People who start asking questions like journalists start to get new lies that help now protect the company. Lies to promote, now lies to protect. Now it's trade secrets. That's why we can't let you in there. We can't let you see what we're working on. Gag orders put onto uh, employees who are threatening to tell all. Other companies' machines, like on the open market, bought by them and brought into their testing sites behind closed doors so they could actually run tests as if they were the ones running them on their own machines when it was really somebody else's gear. One thing after another, lies to protect Lies to promote, lies to protect. Now, like the command itself about false witness in a court of law, like this is an extreme version, but it's a window into what heart motives lead you and me away from honesty. I mean, just think about it. Like, we've talked about the, the, the large-level fraud here, but let's just think about much more mundane, everyday-type examples. How we use the truth to promote ourselves through carefully slanted version. Maybe you've never committed fraud, but, but have you described yourself in a positive light that just picks up the best pieces of a wider puzzle? That maybe slants an interpretation of yourself that crafts somebody else's version of you? I have. Have you seen yourself prone to exaggeration? Because you want to make a stronger impression on somebody? Maybe just to make your case a little more persuasive or to make the story more memorable, more impactful? 
more interesting? Do you ever name drop? Playing up how well you know somebody that you think will impress the people you're talking to or maybe bring up some sort of accomplishment you've, you've, you've had, overstating how significant it is? Or how about flattery? Proverbs speaks about this one often. I think it's a prototypically southern problem, but it's also timeless. This one's deceptive because even to the flatterer, even to the one who, who's, who's choosing selective truths or maybe even saying things they don't believe themselves in order to help someone else feel better, the flatterer can sometimes justify it based on the effect that it's having on this person. What well, makes them feel better? I like to make people, I'm just encouraging them. When in reality, when you highlight the best, when you overstate what you love about or see in them, when you're saying to their face sweet things you wouldn't say if they weren't there to hear it, it's not their feelings that are driving you. What matters to you there is your own standing with them. What they see in you is what you're crafting and manipulating. And that's why the one who flatters is often the same one who slanders. Here's another type of truth shading that often happens. If the main goal is to improve your standing with somebody that you're talking to, slander sometimes works better when the person's not around. So the same person who's prone to flattery when they're face-to-face with somebody can often be a harsh critic when that person's not around, when that person's back's turned, because the motive that drives flattery is the same motive that drives, drives slander. Like what's going to get me further down the road with this person right here that I'm talking to? Self-promotion is behind both flattery and slander. You can see, friends, that in each one of these cases I've just given you, there's usually some truth involved. It's not usually just such a, a blatant lie as the ones Elizabeth Holmes told to get money for her company. Usually there's going to be truth, but it's crafted truth. It's aimed truth. It's manipulated truth. Think of it as, as like an arrowhead, you know, made of rock. Start out with just a chunk of rock. That's not going to get you your, your, your goal. But So you take flint and you chip at it, right? You chip at it until it's shaped into a tool that you can use. The truth is still there. The rock is still there. But now it's, now it's weaponized. Now it's a tool that accomplishes your purpose. Oftentimes, our drive to self-promote leads us to shade the truth in all sorts of ways that are so common, so expected that we can often just not even realize them. Self-promotion. There's also self-protection, though. I mean, again, it doesn't have to be fraud. It doesn't have to be a Theranos-style scam for us to shade the truth to protect ourselves. In my sense, it's our quickest and most instinctive lives come from here. Not from the self-promotion, but from self-protection. A kind of reflex that's almost as intuitive as, as a swatting a fly or you know, ducking a ball that comes at your head. That, that if in, in the wrong situation, when someone's liable to think something about you, we just, boom, instinctively say the thing that's going to get us out of it. I love that. Uh, I love that uh, you know, turn, NCAA tournament time, March Madness. If you're ever streaming live on the uh, CBS website, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed they have the boss screen. Have you guys ever noticed this? Like while you're streaming, there's a, cl- there's a link you can click at the top that poof, pulls up a spreadsheet in case your boss walks by. Have you ever done something like that to protect yourself? Don't want to be seen to be doing exactly what you're doing? Want to have a little bit bigger, a little bit better impression on whoever's looking over your shoulder? Or maybe we lie to avoid something we'd rather not do. Again, shade the truth. I'm busy this weekend. Would love to, but, but, but I can't make it. Just can't make it. I'm busy. Or... To avoid awkward conversations that we'd rather not have. Yeah, it looks great. Sounds great. Just like that. Do it just like that. 
easier to affirm than it would be to tell what you really think? Or shade the truth to protect ourselves when we need to roll back something that hurts somebody else? Oh, that's not really what I said. That isn't what I meant. You, you misheard me. I, I bet you get the point. I don't think I need to keep piling up examples. I'm guessing this sounds more familiar than you wish it did. It does to me. Friends, we know it's good to be honest, good for everybody. That's not a hard case to make. But we also know from our experience that it is hard to be honest. Our dishonesty makes life hard. Hard for ourselves, hard for others in all the ways we've already talked about. And raises a question that I'm in the rest of our time talking about today. How can we be free? We know it would be good to be honest. We know it's hard to be honest. How can we live in freedom? Live with truth. And not with these shackles that we'd so much rather get rid of. How do we get the power to live transparent lives, open lives, without the drive to promote ourselves or to protect ourselves? There's the question. I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. How the truth can set you free. And what I, one thing that I hope is clear already, just in some of the stuff I've already said, is that motives matter tremendously. They always do. It always matters why we do what we do. The only kind of change that the New Testament is interested in for us is the kind of change that comes when our hearts get renovated, right? The work of God's Holy Spirit in us is to change what we love, to change what motivates us in the world. And motive matters tremendously when it comes down to whether we tell the truth or not. This command is given to us here Never to to just sort of channel our own self-reliance, to stir up our own pluck and courage and discipline, to start hunkering down and truth-telling. This command came first and foremost as a way of expressing something about who God is already in His grace to Israel. Before any of these commands are given, God reminds Israel who He is. In chapter 19, as they came to the mountain, and right here in chapter 20, right before the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's who I am to you. These commands come on the backside of God hearing their cries, crushing their enemies, redeeming them out of their slavery, bringing them through the wilderness, feeding them from the sky with food that he just rains down on them, giving them water to drink out of, out of a rock that they just happened to pass by when they were thirsty. And all of this, his protection and his provision is based on a relationship of love for them. And it's in this relationship that he gives them these commands. These commands that he gives them are not arbitrary. They're meant to show what it looks like to live in the world with this God for your God. Every single one of these commands just expresses something that would be true if you believe that God is the one who brought you out of Egypt and set you up in, in, in a land of promise. Think about it. If you're alone in the world, it is a dog-eat-dog world out there. You really can only count on what you provide for yourself or what you can protect of your own. If you're really that vulnerable, if you're living in a world that's dog-eat-dog like that, if you don't have God for your God, well, then, then lying does make sense sometimes. It's actually probably your best option. But Israel isn't alone in the world. Exodus has shown them the truth already. I provide for you, God has said. What are you doing promoting yourself? I protect you. 
God has said. What are you doing trying to protect yourselves? Why would you lie, in other words? See how motive is so important here? This command is an expression of a heart that trusts the God of Egypt, who got them out of Egypt. Now, the problem is that much of Israel's history and much of our experience shows just how futile it is to try to be honest from some other motive than this one. From some other motive than the motive of trust in the God who provides and protects. I uh, recently was reading through an essay that I really, really enjoy. I read it with some guys from here, from here at Trinity. Uh, an essay uh, by Tim Keller, pastor from New York City. On uh, Part of the essay is about just how clearly our motives, our hearts, desires drive our behavior. And one of his examples that I appreciate most is, is on honesty and lying. He says, uh, you know, when you try to teach your kids not to lie... You often fall back on a couple different lines. I mean, as an instinct almost, without even really thinking about it. You fall back on a couple different lines. If you lie, you'll get in trouble. Look at all the terrible things that can come from it. I mean, I even did some of that earlier in this sermon, didn't I? Talking about why honesty is good for us. Look at the fallout of lies. That's one way to, to try to teach someone not to lie. It'll go terribly for you. Don't do it. And there's some truth in that. Another line we often use is, is you know better than lying. We trained you better than that. People don't like liars. You don't want to be thought of as a liar, do you? Who will trust you if you don't tell the truth? You're not a liar. You're better than that. Keller points out, though, that behind each of these approaches to trying to get people to tell the truth lie the very motives that get people to tell lies in the first place. Don't lie, you'll get into trouble. All this terrible stuff will happen. Fear. Protection. Self-protection. You know better than to lie. You're not like all those liars. You don't want to be thought of as a liar, do you? Pride. Self-promotion. You're better than that. And when you try to teach somebody not to lie by appealing to the very motives that drive us to lie in the first place, what you're going to end up with are chronic liars. These lines, there's truth in them, but it's powerless truth because it leaves the heart untouched. You need a better motive to experience the power and freedom that you need to live an open and transparent life. Here's how Keller summarizes it. It's when you're honest, not because it profits you or makes you feel better, but when you're smitten with the beauty of the God who is truth. It's when you come to love truth-telling, not for your sake, but for God's sake and its own sake. So how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we tell the truth because we're smitten with the beauty of the God who's truth? Not for our sake and what it brings to our lives. Not for what it provides or protects. But for the love of the one who's called us to truthful lives. How do we get there? Friends, we need to see what Israel, on the receiving of this command, had not yet had the ability to see. We need to see what is only visible to us now because Jesus has come. To get to where we want to tell the truth for God's sake and not for our own sake, from love and not from fear or pride, we need to see ourselves in Jesus. In Jesus, the one person who's ever had the right to pass judgment on your dishonesty. Because he always and only ever said what was true. 
We need to see ourselves in Jesus, who is the only one who sees you exactly as you are, even now. Even what you've managed to hide from others, who sees you, sees through it all, and loves you anyway, and has paid the cost of your forgiveness. You need to see through Jesus, the God who provides and protects, looking at you as you are, and saying, you're no liar, you're my child. You need to see yourself through what we call the gospel, in, in other words. And there's lots of places to go here. Lots of places we could see this truth. I want to close with one powerful moment with a special resonance with the text we've been talking about today. This command, the language of it, and what it aims at. One powerful moment in Jesus' life that it, when, when our, our eyes see it and our hearts are affected by it, empowers us and sets us free, to be honest. It's a moment that plays out in all the Gospels, all the stories written by Jesus' friends about what happened in Jesus' life, but especially comes out in John's Gospel. In John chapter 8, Jesus, in one of, the, one of his conversations with people about who he is and what he'd come to do, in chapter 8, verses, starting in verse 31 and going to verse 36, Jesus talks about truth. Truth that's celebrated, that's built into and underneath the command we've been talking about this morning talks about truth as something that will set you free he says you will know the truth he says and the truth will set you free and they say to him free we are free we're abraham's children we're god's special chosen people we are free what are you talking about set us free and he says those who sin are enslaved to sin i'm going to set you free from sin i'm going to forgive you for what you've done and through forgiveness make you free That little forecast of his work plays out in John chapter 18. I love the way John 18 tells the story of Jesus' trial. So after Jesus is arrested and before Jesus is crucified, Jesus stands before the high priest and then before the Roman governor Pilate. He stands there to give an account in a legal setting for what he said. He's challenged to, 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 to deny it. Did you say? Did you say? He's asked over and over. Before the high priest, Jesus says, what I said, I said out in the open. Everyone heard it. Go ask them. In other words, I'm not going to change my story. I'm not going to shade this truth to make it sound better. I won't spin this to protect myself. I said what I said, and I stand by it. Before Pilate, he's asked essentially the same thing. Pilate gives him every opportunity to back off what he said about himself. He has said things that could not be forgiven. Things that, that were clearly and on the surface of them claims to God's status. He's claimed that he has the intention to forgive sins. That implies that he has the authority to forgive sins and only God can do that. He said that he's going to lay down his life for his friends. He said that he is one with the Father. He said that before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be God. He's claimed that he himself is the one true way, truth, and life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. He's made claims that get you killed in this society. And if all of these claims had just been lies that he used to promote himself, Theranos style, to get a buzz going before he came into the next town, this is where he'd back them down. Now he would switch from self-promotion into self-protection if that were his aim. Pilate gives him every opportunity to do it, yet Jesus stands tall 
and confirms all of it. He stands in complete control. He stands without free fear. And this is what he says to Pilate. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Does that sound familiar? Now, meanwhile, as Jesus is being tried, as he's being questioned and asked to stand up, things that said, outside, just beyond the walls, one of his closest friends is being tried in his own sort of trial. Peter, who claimed he would never leave Jesus, no matter who was the first to draw his sword when Jesus seemed to be under attack. Peter gets approached by a little servant girl who says, hey, wait a second. Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no. John is switching back, camera focused on Jesus telling the truth. Over here, Peter denying to a servant girl that he even knows him. Back to Jesus, standing true. I came into this world for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. That's all you're going to get from me. Back to Peter, asked a second time. Aren't you one of his disciples? I never knew the man. Three times, Peter denies Jesus in one of the greatest examples, the most tragic and painful examples of lying in all of the Bible. And Luke tells us in his account that at the moment of the third denial, when Peter says, I never knew the man, Jesus looks at him, sees him. He looks right at him while he says, I never knew him. And there is no pretense that can save Peter. No way to promote or protect himself from what Jesus now knows to be true. And then Jesus marched straight to the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. To pay what it costs to forgive sinners. To forgive liars like Peter and like you and like me. Friends, that wasn't the end of this story. Three days after he was killed, Jesus would rise again. Some of his friends would be close at hand to hear from those who were sent to tell this message. Angels waiting for them at the tomb. Hey, he's not here. He's written. Go tell his disciples. And Peter, Mark tells us. And Peter, I'm coming. I want Peter to be there. Peter needs to know that I saw him as he is and I still love him. I saw him as he is and I died to forgive him. I want him to be my friend as he is with no pretense, out in the open, completely transparent. And Peter knew the friendship of Jesus from that day. It's with that confidence, having experienced what it is to be seen in all of your ugliness and loved anyway, that Peter stands up only a few weeks later before masses of people in Jerusalem to proclaim that this Jesus who had just been executed was his Lord and that he'd seen him bearing witness to the fact that he had seen him alive again in the flesh and that you too, all of you, he says, You can have his forgiveness like I have had if you'll trust in him. It was encountering one who sees you, knows you, loves you, and forgives you that transformed Peter from a self-protecting, self-promoting liar into the most powerful preacher that's ever preached a sermon. 
And this same motive, this same encounter with the Christ who knows you as you are, who sees through your face saving and loves you still, it's in this encounter that you can find what you need to live true lives. Much of our lying comes from our desire to save face, to not be seen as we are, to protect our image. But if Jesus has forgiven you and your flaws are known to him and you're loved by him anyway, and if you know that he sees you and accepts you by his grace, who are you hiding from? Why would you pretend that you're better than you are when you've already been forgiven as you are in Christ? And why would you fear what other people think when you know what he thinks? It's only encountering the God of grace who brought them, Israel, out of Egypt and has led us out of sin and death through the person of his son that we find what we need, the truth that sets us free. And I want to pray now that God will make it so in us. Father, we pray that this word you've given, full of life and hope, would be a word that penetrates our hearts so that we love different things from what we have. We know how much in our own hearts we have loved our good name in front of others. We know that our love for our own image has so often trumped our love for you that we have disobeyed you to protect what we love most. We know that the effects of our dishonesty have hurt others, have held us back in our relationships, and have corrosive effects on communities like this church that we love and so we pray that our encounter with Jesus seeing his beauty his power his grace seeing ourselves seen by him and forgiven would change what our hearts love so that we can tell the truth do this work for your name's sake we pray in Jesus name amen